mantra of the American dream is to advance yourself with hard work, ingenuity, innovation. You can have it all. The frightening reality of the gospel. Jesus does call us to give up everything we have. And he may tell any one of us to sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor. But we don't believe this. If we form Jesus to look like us and be who we want Him to be, then even when we gather together and sing our praises and lift our hands, the reality is we are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are worshiping and singing to ourselves. We have a Master who demands radical obedience. A mission that warrants radical urgency. And we do not have time to waste our lives living out a Christian spin on the American dream. The most glorious reason you exist is for the proclamation of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And it's more than having a nice life. It's about giving our lives and our families and our jobs for the proclamation of the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. If we're going to live for the sake of 4.5 million lost people and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who are dying every day because they don't have food on their table, then that means radical change in our lives and our families and church. Church, we are plan A, and there is no plan B. Would you pray with me? Father, to disturb us, probably not a strong enough prayer to awaken us to the reality of the life that we live falls so short of those who've gone before us. As Hebrews said, those cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And that, Father, today, You would come into each of our hearts and awaken us to our own mediocrity, our own complacency, our American spin on a biblical truth. That you would start something here today that would literally rock a world. And Father, these who have come have not come on their own initiative. But Father, I believe that you have divinely called them into this room today. There might be a radical change in all of us. So, Lord God, we ask through the truth of Your Word and the power of Your Spirit, You would teach us today. You would show us today. You would convict us today.
of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Lord, you would show us where we are in light of where you want us to be. Who we are in light of who you want us to be. Begin a radical change in us, Lord. Right here. Right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you start Googling the word radical, you are really at a loss because what you get are typically Islamic extremists that come to the top of the Google search engine. Things that come to the top are things that you don't want to associate with. Those who call out for a holy war against and death to the infidels and, and so forth. Or you come across extremists like KKK or Louis Farrakhan or Rush Limbaugh or Al Franken. You don't necessarily want to associate with some of them or maybe any of them. And I, and I began to struggle with this word radical because, as you will see in the days ahead, it's going to become a theme for us. It's more than a theme as if it's some graphic design. It's going to hopefully be our heart. Hopefully it will mark us for who we really are. But I, I don't want us to think of it in terms of those extremist kind of uh, mentalities. I call those the crazies, not the radicals. All right, that's my definition. That's where I'm moving with it. Is that I don't want I don't want us to to be a part of that extremist kind of group where we try to force feed the world and make the world fit into our mold. I just want us to be in a mold. I just want us to be shaped. I just want us as individuals to be radical about what we believe. Willing to die for what we believe. Willing to live for what we, what we believe. Let's not have any more Bible studies about what we believe if we're not living what we're believing. We have got to come back to understand that when Jesus calls us, He calls us 100%. Not sections, not categories, not, ca- not buckets of our life, but He calls for 100% allegiance 100% of the time. What does that look like? It's untamed, it's extreme, it's courageous, it's catalytic. These are words that, that come to my mind when I think of the term radical. In a book... Uh, untamed by that very name, Alan and Deborah Hirsch said it like this: "To be truly, or to to be a truly radical disciple, does require a relentless evaluation of life's priorities and concerns to ensure that we are not adopting values that subvert the very life and the message we're called to live out. It calls for relentless evaluation of our life." Evaluating down deep. Radicals are untamed. Radicals are are extreme at times. And in many ways, radicals are courageous. Radicals are catalytic. But it's not so that we can make this world fit us. It's that we are truly living out what we say we live in. Living inside of us. I think if we are radical... And that the radical becomes a new normal for us. These words will describe us in, in, in some capacity. We'll, we'll unpack those in just a moment. But just kind of let those words be branded in your mind. How untamed, how extreme, how courageous, how catalytic are you in your life? 
in your faith. How radical are you? I think when we are radical, when we are that, we can truly be, as Jesus said, we would be salt to our culture and light to our communities. We're not going to make an impact. We're not going to make a ripple. We're not going to add light to this darkness, and we're not going to add salt and savory preservation or flavor to this world if we don't truly allow the faith that we say we have truly be lived out in us. A book I read a number of years ago was by Eddie Gibbs called In Name Only. He, he, he does a lot of research, and actually he's one of the readers of my dissertation, and he's an amazing research writer, and, and he came across this, this study that was done that basically brought out the, the classifications of the different expressions of Christianity in America. It was quite disturbing when he came out and he said that basically the two top categories of all those who claim to be Christians in America, which is most of America, that really what you can lump them down to is you can lump them down to those who are notional Christians. And I spoke about that last week. Notional Christians is that idea that if there's any faith that I'm going to identify with, if there's any uh, religious group or sect that I'm going to align with, it's going to be the Christian faith. It's not Islam. It's not Buddhism. It's not Mormonism. It's not these others out there. It is Christianity. Now, I may not be a Christian, and I may not go to church, and I may have never been born again, and I may have never been baptized, I may never join a church. But notionally, I align with the Christian faith. The second sector that makes up the majority of the Christians of America are those who are nominal Christians, those who occasionally attend, those who are occasionally a part, those who frequent maybe just every now and then. Notional and nominal. Notional and nominal are the two words that this researcher says is the most descriptive of the American Christianity, notional and nominal. And I am saddened by that with all that we have and all that we have been exposed to and all the teachings and all the seminary training that we have and all the Christian radio and Christian television that we have out there, of which half of it you have to kind of throw out as bogus. But, I mean, nevertheless, it's out there. All the Bibles that we have in our home, we have one for men and women and and children and, and youth. There's a Bible for every age and stage of your life. Hobby, Bibles, whatever it is. But yet, all of a sudden, what we describe as Christianity in America is just notional and nominal. I want us to redefine. I think it's time for a new normal. I think it's not time for the notional and nominal. I think it's time for the radical. And again, you'll hear more tonight. You'll hear more in the months ahead. Because beginning today kind of hitting and miss, but all the way through the, the month of October, we're going to be talking about the concept of what it means to be radical for Christ. To be untamed, to be extreme, to be courageous, to be catalytic in your faith. What does that look like? And today begins that journey. So today is just enough to open up your heart, maybe just a little bit, to allow the Spirit of God to move in just a little bit, just to begin to say, you know what, that's what I want. I'm tired of notional, I'm tired of nominal to describe who I am. I'm tired of fitting in with Christians at my work. I'm ready to rise above and to set the pace for the Christians in my workplace. 
There's no better, well, there's probably many examples when you look at the early church, but there's definitely one that you need to study when you're looking at what does it mean to be radical. It's a man named Stephen. As soon as he comes on the scene, he's off the scene. He's only on for two chapters in the Bible. He doesn't last long. He's that radical. They extinguish him in much the same manner they extinguish Jesus. They did everything they could as quick as they could to shut the mouth of Stephen. He was an amazing man. Be finding in your Bibles the book of Acts chapter 6. We'll be there in a moment. Because really, you'll only find Stephen mentioned in Acts 6 and 7. You'll find him mentioned in reference back to his life later on in the book of Acts. But that's only to reference a man who was radical in his faith, who set a standard, who raised the bar of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Because Stephen absolutely, as this quote says, Stephen is unquestionably one of the most important figures in the history of the Christian movement. So if there's this person who is absolutely catalytic in his life, untamed in his life, courageous in his faith, you've got to look at the man named Stephen. He set a bar that totally would revolutionize the Christian faith. The thing is, is that he was not one of the twelve apostles. That's an interesting thing. He was not one of the twelve uh, earlier. He was one of the first deacons. He was not an apostle. He was the first martyr for, for Christ. So he wasn't even paid to be an apostle. He wasn't even paid to be a martyr, if you will. He was just sold out in his faith. He was a common, everyday man who was absolutely uncommon in his faith. Uncommon in his commitment. Uncharacteristic. It's about five or six years, some scholars believe, since the day of Pentecost. So this is longer than I anticipated it being, but it's about five or six years, according to some scholars, of time has elapsed. So the church in Jerusalem has become quite the expression. That's all we know of it being, is in the church of Jerusalem. There's some few believers on the outline from Antioch. We'll even mention them in a moment. But there's some outlying believers. But really the one who really shapes it here and really begins to turn things is in the life of Stephen. Up until this point, it was really the Sadducees that were persecuting the church. It wasn't until this point that the Pharisees began to persecute the church. Began to become such a known, such a radical movement that they began to have to deal with the church. The church had grown to the point that there had now become too much for 12 apostles or, or anybody else in leadership to be able to put their arms around everything. They needed more people. They needed more organization. They needed more people on deck because people's needs were not all being met inside the church. But I want us to pick up in, in chapter uh, 6, verse 5, and we see after Stephen kind of comes on the scene here. He has chosen to be one of the early deacons, if you will. Not That word is never mentioned in here, so it was prior to an official office in the church, but there's no doubt when you look at this that you see that being lived out. Verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering... And they chose Stephen. Now, again, what's going on here is they just chose seven men to step up and to be leaders in the church because they needed help serving. And this is who they chose. They chose Stephen. And how do they describe Stephen? Now, notice this, that Stephen is the only one who gets described. He's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Procurius and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas and the proselyte of Antioch. These they set apart, set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase 
And the number of disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem. Notice that. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, again, descriptive of him, describing him again, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and the freedmen, we don't really know who this is. It's, a, it's kind of best guess is that these were once slaves that are now free, and so they were called freedmen. So that's the best guess, pretty, pretty close, I guess, as it, as it was called. Of the Cyrenians and the Alexandria, uh, and Alexandrians and those from Sicily, um, that word, and Asia, and rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly, now notice this, they couldn't get him, they couldn't trip him up, they couldn't win a debate with him. So what did they do? They instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They instigated. It wasn't true. They began to conjure up these lies. Sounds similar to what happened with Jesus, right? Worked with Jesus. Let's try it on Stephen. Verse 12. And they stirred up the people. Well, sure, if they're spouting off lies about the man, it's going to stir up because it's most likely that he did not say anything about God or anything about Moses and the elders and the scribes. And they came up uh, upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they Set up false witnesses. Again, sounds like a kangaroo court, exactly what Jesus went through. Who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place. And never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of the Moses and delivered us. And gazing. Now notice, what, what is Stephen's response to this? Verse 15, and he gazing at him. And all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what an angel looks like. Those little children that we call little angels in our lives, maybe you look like a little baby child. I don't know. What does an angel look like? I don't know. But whatever it was, his face was unique. There was something about even his countenance. Now, what happens in verse chapter 7, and we don't have near the time to go through it. You can read it in your own time. Is Stephen gives what is the longest discourse in all the book of Acts, 60 verses. He goes through and he describes his stance on God, his views on God, his views on Moses. And he gives basically a message to the council. And at the end of that council, he basically points his skinny little finger at them. And he says, you all are guilty. I'm not guilty. Now, that's the McDaniel paraphrase. You read it, and you can find that out. And what they did from that point forward is they took up stones. They did not even go through a proper judicial system. They took up stones and killed this man named Stephen. He was radical. Say, Mike, I'm not looking for martyrdom. Neither was Stephen. Martyrdom doesn't seek it's not something you seek. Martyrdom seeks you. And it seeks you when you live a radical faith. I'm not saying that if you go out there today and you live radically for Christ, that you will face martyrdom. But I will tell you this, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible tells us that. The radical lifestyle that I'm calling us to, that the Bible is calling us to, past the notional, past the nominal, will at times run upstream in this world. 
Now, how we go upstream is important. And understanding what it means to go forward is important. So what are some snapshots of the life of, uh, of Stephen? Real quickly, take these down. One snapshot that you see in the life of Stephen is he had an untamed spirit. He had an untamed spirit. Do you remember the last time you were drunk? Now, don't raise your hands and don't confess anything right now, all right? Do you remember the last time you were inebriated? Hopefully many of you haven't been, but if you have, you, you remember that time when you were inebriated and you were out of control of yourself. Well, guess what? An untamed spirit is a person who is no longer in control. An untamed body, an untamed mind is a person who's been controlled by some other foreign substance. Well, you know what God calls us to? He calls us to live an untamed, drunken spirit life. Now hang on to my thoughts before you go out to the county liquor store. Because there's something to this. What is he talking about when he talks about this drunken state? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he calls us to drunkenness, but he calls us, first of all, not to drunkenness in the, in the cheap kind of wine kind of way. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which will ruin you, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if I can give you the most literal translation of this verse, it would be something like this. Do not be drunk with wine. It will ruin you. Be drunk constantly. That's in the present passive imperative. It's something that happens to you. You have no control over it, but God is doing it in you with the Holy Spirit. Be untamed. What we try to do is we put God in our box. We control how much we give, what we do, where we live, what we, what we say, who we witness to. We live a very controlled Christian faith. And what he's calling us to is an uncontrolled, spirit-controlled kind of faith where no longer is my spirit guiding me, but his spirit is guiding me. No longer am I am now controlled by a foreign influence, if you will. I am living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you were drunk with the Holy Spirit? You were to listen to Mike McDaniel's amplified version of this verse. It would be this. Don't be drunk on the cheap stuff, stupid. It will ruin you. Be constantly drunk on God's Spirit. It will radicalize you. If you look at the life of Stephen, you see a man who was absolutely controlled, consumed by the Spirit. It says that when they chose these seven men, they said, go out and find men full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And that's exactly what they did. Because when you look at verse 5, it says again that Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And if you go over to chapter 7, verse 55, again, it will talk about the Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit. He was intoxicated by the Spirit of God. He was untamed by his own spirit. His spirit could no longer control him, but God's Spirit was controlling him. We've got to remove the box from around our Christian faith. The limitations have got to go. We've got to be allowing the Spirit of God to literally permeate every part of our life. 
And only then will I believe that there can be a radicalization of our spirit, of our life, to the point that lives are changed and lives are rearranged and communities are truly impacted for Christ and unreached people groups around the world will ever know Christ. Is when we live a radicalized kind of life and that happens when we live as untamed but consumed and influenced by the Spirit of God. If you're going to study radicals in this next few months with us, please go. If you're a biography reader, read read about Jim Elliott. He was a radical for Christ. You can read about him. You can watch movies about him. You can read all kinds of autobiography or excuse me biographies about him. You read Elizabeth Elliott, and you you find out about amazing things about this man named Jim Elliott. He gets most of the fame, but there were four others who went to the Wadani tribe to the Aka Indians. And gave their life radically for Christ. Again, they weren't seeking martyrdom. Martyrdom sought them as they radically lived unparametered, untamed lives for Christ. One statement that I think Jim Elliott says that is so powerful. He said this, so many missionaries intent on doing something. Forget that his main work is to make something of them. The greatest work to radicalize your life is to allow the Spirit of God to do something in you. Then you can do something great for God. What we want to do is we want to do something great for God inside our box. Inside our limitations. Inside our parameters. What I'm willing to give and what I'm willing to do and where I'm willing to serve. This is what I'll do, God. You work inside my box and I'll be radical for you in my box, God. Take it down. Be untamed in your spirit as His Spirit controls your spirit. Number two, there's an extreme depth of insight that happens. This world is, seems foggy at times. I don't know about it for you. It just seems a little hazy at times. I, I think sometimes, well, I think many times, I think we make very shallow decisions. Maybe it's an emotional decision. You know, we, we shop on emotions. We, we buy things on emotions. We... We enter into relationships on emotions. And sometimes it's very shallow and very foggy. And then we, we wonder why God doesn't bless us. And, but yet, there's an extreme depth of insight with a person who's radical for Christ. Extreme depth of insight. These, these, these evidently debaters, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. And Alexandria, if you will, if you go back and study the history of, 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 of that era and, and that time of education, Alexandria was the most educated region in the world. It was the Harvard, if you will, the Ivy League school area of that day. So he was not debating against some kind of uh, tutti-frutti, you know, kind of brain, half-brain kind of people. He was, he was debating against people who were very educated. And they were challenging Stephen. But I love what they said. Verse 10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. There's a level of wisdom that goes far deeper than and it far, brings greater clarity in this world of, of fog and this world of mist in which we live. He was full of wisdom, it says in verse 3. There's wisdom here. There's an there's amount of wisdom that is in, in, is, that is in Stephen. is something that we need to understand is a radical part of the whole radicalization of Christianity. What, is, what does wisdom look like? I know it's one of those words that we have a hard time with. And it's not just education. 
Here's a couple of things that I think maybe help describe what wisdom does for us. It gives us depth perception. It gives us the ability to see things with greater depth. There's greater depth perception in, in able to, to see beyond the surface, see beyond just the here and the now. It, it goes much deeper than that. So many people enter into relationships that lack wisdom. They, 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 they make job decisions based on the almighty dollar, not on the almighty God. They, they, they choose a church on what it can give me instead of what it is asked of me. Can I say that again? They choose a church based on what it will give me. Was I fed? Were my children taken care of? Was it secure? All that. What, what the church will give me instead of what the church will ask of me. See, what wisdom will do is wisdom will look past that surface of, of, of games and tricks and, and so forth. And you'll say, you know what? That's good and that's fine. Disney does a better job than the church does. We need to understand that. What are they going to ask of me? How are they going to bring me along? And how am I going to be stronger and better for Christ and God because of being a part of that church? How's this relationship? And all the beauty on the exterior looks so good, but we enter into that relationship because of the beauty on the exterior. Beauty fades. See, what wisdom does, it gives us depth perception. And you begin to see things in a totally different perspective. It also brings us clarity of vision brings us a clarity of vision so that whenever we are making decisions in life, we can see things a lot clearer. Now, Lori, Caleb, and I uh, enjoy diving. And uh, one, I was able recently to mark off one of my bucket list items uh, before I die, and that's to dive the Great Barrier Reef. And so we were able to go, Caleb and I, and dive in there. It was an amazing time. And uh, there's one thing about diving that I, I learned very quickly on is that when you go under the water and you're diving in the Great Barrier Reef, you're diving in Cozumel, you're diving in the Bahamas, you're diving in any of these places, you know, you may have beautiful fish and beautiful reef and beautiful coral underneath and just amazing. But you know what? One of the things that brings greater clarity to the dive is amazing. If you think about it, when you're 30, 60, 90 feet below the surface of the of the water, and you would think this would have no influence on it. But there's something about it that the sun on this side affects the clarity on this side. What happens when we have wisdom, that only comes from God, is it's the sun that shines into our world that brings clarity to our life. And and I don't know what the S-O-N is in your life and how much He is shining into your life to bring clarity to your life. But when that happens, no matter how persecuted you face, no matter how much opposition you face, when you have wisdom, when you have this depth of understanding and insight, all of a sudden, all of life's trials and troubles really don't matter. The longest single defense, as I said, is chapter 7. But if you're in chapter 7, go over to verse 54 with me. Because at the end of of his discourse, he kind of comes out and and this is kind of where it, 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 it ends because... His life is about to end in verse 54. And they heard these things and they were enraged. And they ground their teeth like a pack of wild dogs, one translator put it. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is again. What did he do? He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When you live radically for Christ... 
and you live the untamed, spirit-controlled life, and whenever you live with this depth of insight, this wisdom, what you're going to be able to do is you're going to be able to look past the surface, past the fog, past the mist, past all the confusing emotional elements of our world in which we live, and you are going to be able to gaze right past it. And just as the rocks were being picked up to be hurled at Stephen's head, just imagine, just within seconds of this moment, he dies, maybe a blow to the temple. I don't know what happens. But these rocks start falling on Stephen's life. Where is he looking? He is looking past his accusers, past the stones, past his circumstances, past hell on earth, and he is looking into the face of God. He sees the glory of God. When somebody lives a radical life, all of a sudden, hell on earth doesn't matter. All of a sudden, all the yes stuff that happens in life doesn't matter when you know you are on course with God. It leads to a third element, a third snapshot if you look into the life of Stephen is the courageous love. A courageous love. You know, again... I emphasize courageous love because I think to really put our arms around what grace looks like, that's exactly what it is. Because it says in verse, verse uh, chapter 6, verse 8, it says that he was full of grace. See, grace will do something in us. It helps us to love unconditionally. Uh, grace enables us to, to forgive people deeply in life. and it, it takes us to a whole new level. It, it takes love that seems like, a, again, an emotional set of things that happen inside of us. And when those things are all lining up, when the, the beauty is there and the circumstances are there and the job is all right and the money's okay and everything's in order, then we say, oh, I love my job. I love my relationship. I love, I love. It, when it's all lining up. But grace forces us into a mode because you don't need grace unless you have found the short side of life. Unless you've had a boss who's ripped you off. and you, Unless you've had a relationship that's been broken. Unless you've had a friend who's let you down. There's no need for love. There's no need for grace until that comes. But he was full of grace. He was absolutely full of grace. And again, back in chapter 7, verse 59, what happens when these stones are being hurled at him? Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Boy, all this sounds so much like Jesus' life. Wow. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's gone in a matter of two chapters. But as he's dying, you can't but help think about the life of Jesus. What does grace do to us? It does a couple of things. It teaches us how to give and when others are saying take. We live in a world like this when we need to live in a world like this. Grace is giving. Grace is how we should give. People get so caught up in how much I give. I give my tithe and so I've given. You know what? If you don't do more under grace than under the law, than the Jews did under the law, that's a disgrace to grace. Grace is a matter of freely, actively giving of myself. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8 
He even said this, excel, be radical in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness. And our love for you, see that you excel or are radical in this act of grace. The idea of giving. He says, be like the, be like the Macedonian church, Church of Corinth. Giving is a part of, of the grace element. It's giving it out of our life. Bar, the Barbarian Way, a book by Erwin McManus, which is, again, I think a, a very much a play on the whole radical theme. But he just uses the word barbarian to define it. He said the barbarian way will, will learn quickly that love and sacrifice cannot be separated. Love and sacrifice. What do we find in the life of Stephen? We find love as he's being sacrificed with stones against the head. Grace. It's deeper than love. It's wider than love. It goes longer than love. It, it takes you further than love. On the emotional level, it is love in action. You cannot say you love your wife and not show your love. Number two, enables me to forgive when others seek revenge. Again, I brought out the parallel of Christ in his life already. And the whole idea, when you look at the life of Christ, you see Jesus dying on the cross Right at that very moment, they're, they're bartering for his clothes. Right at that very moment, they're shoving vinegar up into his mouth to, to quench his thirst. They're, they're, they're antagonizing him and they're terrorizing him as he's dying for us. And what does he say? He says, Father, say it with me. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The level of grace and forgiveness that comes to a person full of grace is radical. There will be people, your friends, your friends, your friends will tell you you need to get even. Your friends will tell you that your anger is justified. Your friends will tell you that, you know what, that person doesn't deserve to live. Grace says, I'm going to forgive them anyway. I'm going to give to them anyway. That's what grace does. That's radical. It's not normal. Number four, fourth snapshot, and I'm finished. He's a catalytic revolutionist. Big word, big words. But if you look up in the dictionary, you find the word radical, and you look at other synonyms to that word, you will find the word revolutionist. A person who's starting, who's swimming upstream and who's leading a change, who's leading a movement that will literally shake the foundations of the world. I mean, look at America. It was founded on revolutionists. It's the idea that, you know, we're not happy here and we need to see things change. But the catalytic revolutionist is the first person in the track. He's the first person in the, who stands up and says, listen, it's time for a change. Who in this room will be catalytic revolutionist? Who in this, in your family will say, you know what, we need to become more radical in our giving, more radical in our grace, more radical in the way we think about things and the decisions that we make. We need to go with wisdom. Who's going to be that person who's going to step back and go a little slower through the decisions of life? Wait a little bit more on God. If you take your Bibles and you look over in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Who's his execution? His is Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the beauty of what happens here is Acts chapter 8 1 happens 
so that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 will be fulfilled. Because up until this point, all that was happening in Jerusalem was the church of Jesus Christ was getting fatter and fatter and bigger and bigger. And it wasn't living out Acts 1.8. But what happened when Stephen's life, he became the catalytic revolutionist that began to set the wheels in motion to change the church, to change the tide, to change the future, that changed the church from being a cultic little group gathering in an upper room in Jerusalem to make it alive, to make it transforming. Because of Stephen giving his life. He could have easily gone to court and stood before the judges and clearly said, okay, I will back down. I will will be within the confines of the law. But listen, what we need, we need people who are revolutionist in their radical nature. Here's a life principle for you. Radicals shake up comfortables. I don't know if comfortable is a word, but it's it's now. Radicals will shake up comfortables. If you're comfortable, you're probably not radical. Because it is going to change your life. Vance Havner said it was his job. An old Baptist pastor said it was his job to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. And there are times for that. My fear is this, and and I'm through is that we are a generation. We are a generation that we're one generation from seeing Christianity extinct in America. I don't have time to develop this at all, but one of the things that I observed from being in Australia was a full-on generation of men that I was with that they said again and again and again, not once but multiple times that I hear, I never grew up in church. I didn't know about God. I don't know about this relationship with Jesus thing. It was again and again and again. And if you look at where Australia is, and if you look at where Western Europe is, and you look at a generation now living in that generation of of non-radicals, notional and nominalist faith livers, then what you have is what America will be one generation from now. There are 8 million teens that are actively in the student ministry these days, but who will no longer attend church when they get into their 30s. 58% drop their church attendance during their 20s. That's a sad part. And I wonder sometimes why is that? And there's a lot of reasons. I know there's a lot of reasons. We could spend an entire series on, on, on a lot of reasons. But I'll tell you this. I think part of it is because we have presented to this generation an emasculated, sterile, impotent faith. And we are not radical. And what we need, and we need radical people. Let, let's raise up a generation of radicals for God who... who by being a generation of radicals for God. What is that going to mean? Each individual in this room is going to have to decide in their heart and in their life, am I going to give it all or am I going to hold back? How much of my life is His and how much am I holding back for myself? Let's start with ourselves before we can look anywhere else. Father God, Lukewarm, you don't want. You vomit them. 
You tell us that, Lord, when the salt loses its, its, its flavor, it's not even good for the manure piles. It's just thrown out. Lord, make us radical. And let it begin right here in our hearts. Raise up, Lord Stevens, who will be so serious for you, Lord. So sold out. Nothing held back. We pray this in the beautiful and the mighty name of Jesus.